Friends, let's open our Bibles to Psalm 136 this morning. Psalm 136 is an antiphonal psalm, which was to be read, one half of the congregation would read one portion and the other half would read the response. Now, if you have your Bible open, you can see the response is, for his loving kindness is everlasting. His loving kindness is everlasting. 26 times that is the response. I'm not, we're not going to do that today. But I'm going to ask you a question later. 26 times in the psalm it says, His loving kindness is everlasting. Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. Why? Because His loving kindness is everlasting. Give thanks to the God of gods. Why? For His loving kindness is everlasting. Give thanks to the Lord of lords. Why? And it goes on and on and on and on. And I hope that you will know the answer by the time I ask that question. Okay. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you today, remind us and fix in our minds that your loving kindness is everlasting. In the darkest times of our lives, remind us that your loving kindness is everlasting. In the great heights of our life, in the great joys that we experience, in the times of great triumph, your love is everlasting. Heavenly Father, come with your Holy Spirit and open our eyes to your word today, that we would know this, that we would live this. We ask in Christ's name, amen. This is one of the Psalms of Ascent, as they would sing this on the way to Jerusalem, and that this Psalm uh, was to be sung almost unceasing within the temple itself. It is the great Hallel song. Uh, Hallel, we get the word, what word do we get from Hallel? Um, Hallelujah, okay, and that's, it's easy to see that. We get this, and, and so we can understand this great joy that is throughout the words of this psalm his loving kindness is everlasting now the the children sang some classics here uh what is some other classic kids sermon of uh, the kids song um praise him i only get the key right praise him praise him all you little children god is what god is love god is love now the god is love oh that just gives me a warm fuzzy doesn't it to you but what does that mean when we say that God is love, well, if we look at the world and we look at love, what does that mean? Does it mean God is love as Hollywood presents love? I certainly hope not. Is it the love that I experience in my wife and my girls? Well, maybe that's a little bit closer. It is the love that I have for chocolate or coffee. Really, it's the creamer that I like, not the coffee. Uh, is it the love I have for meat that's been barely cooked over an open flame? No. This is a love that is particular and it flows out of God's character and out of God's goodness. It flows out of who He is. It flows out of what He has done, what He is doing, and what He is yet to do. This is God's love. This is God's character. It is God's goodness at its heart. And this is the type of love that He as we'll see here in a moment, the type of love in particular, when we talk about his loving kindness is everlasting, this is his redeeming love. His redeeming love, or we would say the love that is demonstrated to us in the New Testament 
through the work of Jesus Christ. The love that comes to save. The love that cares for us. The love that orders all things in this world, what? For our good, for those who love Christ, who are called according to His purposes. You say, I've come to some things that I don't think are really good, Rand. But yet, if we are called according to His purposes, if we love Him, then He will order our life and bring those things into our life that are for our good, that demonstrate His love for us. The supreme expression of the loving kindness of our Heavenly Father is in the redemption of those who belong to Him. Just think about that for a moment. It, it, the supreme love of our Heavenly Father. That, you know, Mervette said, as she, as she shared with that one lady, what does He know about, about the death of His child? And, and she said, He sent His child to give His life for us. This is the redeeming love that the Father has for His creation. Now this psalm was to be sung, as I said, in, on the way, psalm of ascent, on the way to Jerusalem. It was to be sung within the temple. We see it in the, the book of Chronicles. Uh, there are two guys in particular that are mentioned uh, who are supposed to be, or, or who are part of the group that sing it without end, who sing it continually. Uh, the book of Chronicles mentions Heman and Judithan. Um, two of our favorites, uh, you know, I don't know why, if I had a son, he was going to be named Heman, okay? It's probably why God didn't give me one. <laughs> Spurgeon says, this continued service of song was most fitting, for if Jehovah's mercy endures forever, our praise should endure forever. If his goodness never ceases, our thanksgiving should never be silent, should never be silent. Now, God never asked us to worship Him or to praise Him without providing an understanding for the reason why. Why do we praise God? Why do we give thanks to Him? Well, here it is. His loving kindness is everlasting. Now, this is very important in our modern world because we have a problem in worship. Why do we come to worship? Because oh, I want to feel good. No, no, no. Well, it may be I want to feel good. I've had a tough week. I want to come and do... no. Worship is what, what, what portion of speech is worship? We come to worship. To, not in location, but in action. Because worship is a verb that we do. We come so that we might worship the Lord. We come so that our hearts might be laid bare before Him and then lifted up to Him. We do not come so that we can feel something. We don't come so that we can walk away all jazzed up. That might be a byproduct if our hearts are right and if we have come for the right purpose. Uh, I read a discussion on a blog with uh, some, some worship leaders of some very large churches, and, and they were wondering, they, they, kept, they kept asking themselves the same question. Why is it that on some Sundays it feels like, man, the Spirit is moving, and we can feel it, and the congregation can feel it, and everybody walks out so jazzed, and in other weeks it's not so much. Does the Spirit not show up? And then one guy in this discussion said, maybe we have it wrong. Maybe we come expecting God to give us something when we should come to worship to give God something. And, and this, was, this was a revelation to, uh, to the people who were, who were interacting on this blog. They're like, do you think that could be it? Do you think that's the reason why it seems so uneven? Because we come to get something instead of to give something? Well, that's what Scripture says. We come to worship our Heavenly Father, to sing His praise. And our praise is rooted in the truth which God has revealed to us 
in his word. So the steadfast love of God, the everlasting loving kindness of our Heavenly Father is laid out throughout Scripture. Now let's turn over to Romans chapter 8. This is perhaps the, the clearest example for us, the clearest um, uh, statement of what this is about. Romans chapter 8. I know this is a terrible thing, but this is a passage we should have memorized, and I don't have it memorized, um, so, but you should have it memorized. Okay? <laughs> Verse 31, my goodness, this is the clearest statement of the everlasting love of our Heavenly Father that He has for us, for those of us who are in Christ, for those of us who were chosen before the foundations of the earth in Christ, according to His plan, according to His love. And, and he's, he, he, he mentions all these things, and then he says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And what's the flip side of that? If God is against us, who could be for us? What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who could be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And here comes this long list. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword just as it is written, for thy sake we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep led to slaughter. But in all these things we are more than conquerors through Christ who loves us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor principalities, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, and that's pretty much everything, but just to make sure we understand, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the redemptive love that our Heavenly Father has for us as it is demonstrated to us through Christ Jesus our Lord. And did God create everything? Well, yes, if He created everything, and it says, nor anything other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God. So then can anything separate us from the love of our Heavenly Father? No, the answer is no. Once you are His, once you belong to Him, once you rest in His hand, nothing can take you from His hand. This is the redemptive love. This is the greatest form of love that we have ever seen, that we ever will see, that the world really doesn't grasp outside of the gospel. Now, back to 136. Let's look at a couple things in this psalm. And there are so many. Obviously, we're not going to get through the whole psalm today. It wasn't my intention. We are only going to look at just a couple things in particular. Look at verse 3. Give thanks to the Lord of lords. He reigns and He rules. He is the sovereign Lord. And because He is sovereign, He is in sovereign control of all things. All things are working together for His glory, for the good of those who belong to Him. 
Look at verse 26. Give thanks to the God of heaven. He reigns. He is enthroned above the earth. He is the Lord. He is not like us. Okay, God is infinite. He is eternal. He is unchangeable in His being, in His wisdom, in His power, His holiness, His justice, His goodness, His truth. And because of whom He is in His goodness and uniqueness, and sorry, I'm, I'm piling up the, the terms here. I hope you understand it is so hard to categorize what the Lord is because He is so far above us and so different from us, but yet He extends His love to us. He fixes His steadfast love on you. You who were chosen before the foundations of the earth in Christ. His love is unfailing, it is sure, it is true, and you are held in His grip for all time. For all time. God holds you in His grip of love, and that is the ultimate ground of who you are before the Lord. His love is demonstrated to you. His love flows from His goodness. His love flows from His character. His love flows from all that He is, and He loves to be generous with that. So God's being, His character, His very essence of who He is, that's really the first reason for the steadfast love of God that we enjoy. Now the psalmist has taught this in many places, and and our worship, we understand, is rooted in what we believe. It is rooted in our theology. It is rooted in the teaching of Scripture. It is rooted in the divine word. And it is important for us to confess and to acknowledge him and to express that in our worship. So in true worship, we acknowledge the Lord's goodness, his grace, his love, his commitment, his commitment to us. We give thanks to the Lord for he is good and his steadfast love endures forever. Now, how is that seen? All that to say, and we're only going to look at two things. It is seen in many ways, but the psalm highlights two things. It is seen in his creation, and it is seen in our redemption. His creation and our redemption. Look at verses 4 through 9. To him who alone does great wonders, and then the response... To him who made the heavens with skill and the response. To him who spread out the earth above the waters and the response. To him who made the great lights, the sun to rule by day, the moon and the stars to rule by night. For his loving kindness is everlasting. My friends, there is some, some debate about creation. Okay, And we, we live in a scientific world, we live in a scientific area, uh, but if we pitch out creation... We do not understand redemption. If we pitch out the fact that God, in His love, created a place for us and created us out of love so that we might be redeemed by the work of Christ, we have a problem. If we are here by some random chance or random collision between innate particles and then God said, hey, there's people, I think I'll redeem them. That really doesn't fit with his plan. It doesn't fit with redemption as a whole. It doesn't demonstrate his love. He has created us for a purpose, and that is that we might be redeemed. Now, atheists have long had a problem with the fact, and and the fact, I'm just quoting some studies here. Uh, I'm going to quote one study. There There are many other studies about this, that children, by their nature, are creationists. You think, I've never heard that, Rand. How, how can you help me with that? That children by their nature 
are creationists, that they believe in agency. That's a big, agency is a word we don't usually use in this, in this context much, but there was a study by uh, Olivera Petrovich of Oxford University, and then she found that when children hear claims of God's existence in creation, in their mind, they make perfect sense. Okay, it's not as if we're adults and we have all this baggage of intellectualism, not that intellectualism is all baggage, I understand, but we've got all these other things going on. Children look at the world and they go, well, yeah, somebody made this, and and how did they come to that conclusion? Because of agency. When they get to the dinner table, they don't go, wow, it just magically appeared. Okay, you have to think like a child here. It just magically appeared. They don't say that. They say what? Mom brought the food. I saw mom was cooking in the kitchen, and that's how the food got here. So when they look at the world, they go, well, yeah, God exists. They may not be able to find God beyond that, but something exists. Remember the illustration with the the natives and and the missionaries at Papua New Guinea years ago, and they they began to talk about how back in their country in in America that some people feel that we descended from apes, and and the natives went, what? Well, that's stupid. Nobody thinks that. I mean, how could you be an ape one minute and then, and then turn into a human? They believe in agency. They see the world around them and they go, it had to get here from something. And that something is God. Now, they might not be able to find God theologically in the same way that we do, but they believe in agency. It's here because it was created. We're not here by accident. We were created. And this psalm talks about the goodness of God and His loving kindness in his actions of creation, in his actions of agency. Okay, he does something and we benefit from it. So the second one, and and again, these are just quickly covering these topics. The second one is in redemption itself. Let's look at verse 10. To him who smote the Egyptians in their firstborn, His loving kindness is everlasting. And brought Israel out of their midst with a strong hand and an outreached arm to him who divided the Red Sea asunder and made Israel pass through the midst of it. But he overthrew Pharaoh and his army in the Red Sea to him who led his people through the wilderness for his loving kindness is everlasting. God's great acts of redemption, if we look back at the Old Testament, are seen in these miraculous events. And where, where the Lord comes and he does the particularly miraculous events, like the parting of the sea, like the deliverance out of bondage of his people. After 430 years, they cry out, Lord, when, when? And he does it, and it is done in a miraculous way that no human could have done. For a particular purpose, it's done that way. So that we understand that no human could have redeemed his people. When we look at our own sins, we think, well, can I be good enough to be pleasing before God? No, he has to come and redeem us. In Sunday school, we were talking about sacrifices and how they had to do them again and again and again in the Old Testament. And we scratched our heads and said, why, do we have to, why did they have to do it again and again? Because no bull, no, no blood of any bull or blood of any goat or any lamb could really cover once and for all the sin of you and I. Because our sin is so bad, it took what kind of sacrifice to cover that? A perfect sacrifice. And God has done this in his redemption of his people. God's redeeming acts towards his 
chosen people are some of the favorite themes throughout Scripture. We see it again and again. In the Old Testament, the people annually memorized verbatim the words of the Exodus passages so that they would be fixed in their minds, so that they would be reminded of the great redemptive act of God. And today, we're going to remember and participate in what? The Lord's Supper, the greatest redemptive act that the Lord has ever done. We think, well, yeah, I'm saved, but, but that's not part in the Red Sea. I mean, that was really big. I remember, you know, Charlton Heston up there doing that, and the sea parted, okay? No, it, it wasn't that a bigger event than my redemption? No. To save us took what? The death of Christ, the death of the Son of God. I mean, to part the Red Sea, what did it take? God went, part, and it was done. To feed his people for 40 years in the wilderness took what? Some miraculous event from the Lord to provide food each day. No, the Lord said, manna, and there was. But to save me from my sin, the sin that I am responsible for, took the death of Christ. Redemption is a far greater act in my life than just crossing the Red Sea. And that was accomplished by Christ on the cross. God demonstrates his love for us. What? That while we were still sinners, not when we got cleaned up, but while we were still sinners that Christ died for us. It is the work of Christ who by his life of obedience, his death, his resurrection, he does these things for us. He triumphs over sin and over death and over hell. He has triumphed over Satan and has won for us perfect redemption. Nothing needs to be added to it. Yes, our lives are lived in obedience to Him. Because, why? Because we understand His grace in our lives. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. He didn't pick the one that He liked least. Okay? He didn't create a bunch of sons and go, you know what, I want you to go down and give your life for those measly, ugly people down there. He said, no, I've got one son and I'm going to give him to you. When, while you're still in your sin, that's when I will give him to you. His steadfast love endures forever. It is God's covenant love for us. This is the ground for our blessing. This is ground for our hope. And he repeats this 26 times. Why does he repeat it 26 times? Because it takes a little bit to get it through our thick heads. Martin Luther got up and five successive days preached the same sermon. And finally, somebody had the guts to walk up to him after a service one day and said, Dr. Luther, uh, you're, you're, I don't know if you know it or not, but you've preached the f- same sermon five days in a row. And he says, well, when you start to believe it, I'll move on to another topic. <laughs> His loving kindness is everlasting. His loving kindness is everlasting. This 26 times, this is so that we are convinced that everything God has done, that God is doing, that God will do is for us, those who belong to Him. He's making all things work together for our good. Why? Because His loving kindness is everlasting. He's created a world for us. He has placed us within it. And He's given us His Son as a demonstration of this. And the only 
possible response that we can give for a love like this is everything that we have. Let's pray. My goodness, Heavenly Father. Our finite minds cannot even get around this topic that your loving kindness is everlasting. We live in a world where we make promises to love one another and those promises don't always work out. We make promises that will care for each other and those promises don't always work out. So when we hear words like everlasting, that your love for us is everlasting, we have trouble comprehending this. On the days that we have strayed from your will, on the days that we have really made a mess of things, your love is everlasting. On the days where we sit by ourselves and we examine our own hearts and we, we see the depth of sin in our own hearts, on those days your love is, is everlasting. On the days that we have triumphed and we, we hold ourselves up as the pinnacle and say, I have done this, it, but your love is everlasting in that day. That triumph may not last very long. We fall off those mountaintops but your love is everlasting. Fix this in our brains. Get this through the skulls and through our, our sinfulness that you desire this relationship with us and you call us unto Christ and you draw us unto yourself because your love is everlasting and everything that you are and everything that you have done and will do and are doing presently is to demonstrate this to us so that we might live lives that reflect this everlasting love that you have placed within us. Lord, we thank you for this love. We don't fully grasp it, but we thank you because we know we don't deserve it. But we give you praise and we worship the one whose love is everlasting. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.